0: Welcome back to the Happy Saver podcast, I'm Ruth, a personal finance blogger here in Aotearoa and as you know in this podcast I chat with a diverse bunch of people and I learn their story and then I condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, their tips and point of view on personal finance right here in New Zealand. So let's crack on. Today I am really looking forward to sharing the financial ins and outs of Rachel, a wonderful wahine who has been listening to this very podcast for years. Now it must feel pretty weird to finally turn up on it, so kia ora Rachel, I hope I represent your journey well. Now she enjoys this podcast because the stories I share are relatable, because they are of course about everyday Kiwis in Aotearoa, Hers, as you are about to find out, is a cautionary tale that she hopes you don't have to go through yourself, but you will come out more aware and informed having heard about it. Her partner of eight years, Tony, died suddenly in mid-2020. While coping with the shock and grief of this, she then also had to embark on a long journey of unravelling the financial side of his life. But because he died intestate or without a will, she had shaky legal rights to do so. These days she is really focused on her finances and she said she'll squawk at anyone about them, particularly when it comes to retirement plans, end of life plans and the necessity of having a will. Coping with her grief was hard enough. Sorting out the settlement of his estate made it doubly hard and she wants you to avoid the same situation at all costs. But before I jump into it, I just wanted to give you a quick life update of my own. Now you will have noticed a gap in podcasts coming out, well it's simply down to life being busy for Johnny and I, and the fact that so much time spent at my computer is actually causing me physical pain in my arms and shoulders, so I'm focusing on backing off the typing and upping the physio to fix it, which means less episodes, I'm sorry. But I've got no plans to stop releasing them, but they'll just be when I can. And if you go to my blog, thehappysaver.com and subscribe, I'll email you when a blog post comes out and I'll give you a heads up that a new podcast is coming out too. Now, it's only right that because Pocketsmith sponsors each episode... Uh, that I went to them and I explained what was going on, and I gave them the chance to call it quits with their support. But, and this is a testament to the kind of company they run, they said they're happy to support Johnny and I, even with the decrease in episodes. So thanks for that team, we really appreciate you. And that is why I'm more than happy to tell you a little bit about today's sponsor, you guessed it, Pocketsmith. Are you busy? I'm busy. Everyone's busy these days. That was one of the main reasons why I stopped tracking my income and expenses by hand and switched to Pocketsmith instead. I took a bit of time to learn how it all works, and now 99% of the work is done for me. I use Pocketsmith to track my household's multiple income streams, plus our random assortment of weekly, monthly, and annual expenses. Whenever I can, I look to automate and optimise household systems beyond simple budgeting. A fun fact, if you are one of the 88% of Kiwis who invest, Pocketsmith also connects with most KiwiSaver providers, investment platform sharesies, and it lets you integrate with your share site investment portfolio. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. HappySaver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to Pocketsmith.com forward slash the Saver. That's Pocketsmith.com forward slash the Saver. Now, Rachel is a 50-year-old wahine from the North Island and she now lives in Auckland. Her family tree has many branches as her parents divorced, messily she said, when she, the youngest of four tamariki, was just two years old. Her dad remarried a few years later and he went on to have three more children. At the time of their divorce in the mid-1970s, Rachel and her sister stayed living with her mum while her two brothers lived with her father. She had little to do with her father's new family growing up and it was a tumultuous time, she said. But when all was said and done, now as an adult, she thinks she came out of it okay. Both of her parents were very hard workers who seemed to enjoy their work, but in a second marriage she said her dad had money sorted, but her mum simply did not. In saying that, money was never discussed growing up. No one taught her anything about sex ed either, she said two of the biggest life skills that can shape a person emotionally and mentally, and she missed out on both. Her lessons came from observation and life experiences, really. Her father owned a business and purchased property while her mother went off the rails, with incidents with alcohol and the police being called many times. Rachel's sister, who's six years her senior, looked both after her and out for her a lot. With financial support, which she thinks might have come from her grandparents, Rachel was sent to boarding school, a place she didn't want to go because it made her feel so isolated from her family. She thinks that her mum did it for the right reasons because she had been moving her and her sister around the North Island a lot, but there was no support or encouragement. Instead, more the idea of, you are at a good school, just do with it what you can. Well, it turns out that those guidelines were hugely lacking, and she was asked by the school to leave at the age of just 15 having passed just three subjects in what was then fifth form and is now called Year 11. The options offered to her were, one, go to another boarding school, or two, get a job. She had enjoyed a brief part-time job at the age of 14 working at an Auckland florist at a funeral home, so she went down that path, getting a full-time job there, and to this day it remains one of her favourite jobs. She stayed for five years and earned a qualification in professional floristry. She remembers it as a good job that set her up with great life skills, and she worked away from junior to intermediate, and then on to becoming a senior florist at the age of just 20. Once she hit that age, she finally moved out of home and went flatting. Any occasion that required flowers, from weddings to funerals, she covered it and she loved it, and it taught her a lot of skills, both interpersonal and practical, and it meant a lot to her to give clients that last personal touch before they farewelled their loved ones at a funeral. As soon as she started working at the age of 15, her mother told her that she had to pay board of $30 a week. Even though money was never mentioned at home, Rachel always knew it was scarce. They never seemed to have enough, and it was very common for the phone or the power to be cut off, and she knew money was both precious and tight. She remembers her mum always sitting down writing out lists and budgets, but the contents of them were never discussed. And while there might not be enough putia to pay the phone bill, there was always, always money for alcohol, gambling and cigarettes. Her mum, Rachel said, was definitely an alcoholic, and watching her mum cry if there was no cask or box wine in the house is a bit of a telltale sign, she told me. But she was also the type of alcoholic who could go to work each day too, and watching this from the sidelines has put Rachel off alcohol for life with her drinking only being the very occasional glass of champagne during extra special occasions. In the late 1980s, Rachel was hardly a high-income earner, telling me she earned just $142 for a 40-hour week. At $3.55 an hour after tax, that sounded like slave labour to me. She said there was a minimum wage, and I looked it up, it was around $4.20 per hour for youth and $7 for adults, but her employer didn't really follow it. And you can forget about there even being an employment contract. When she was about 17 or 18, she remembers she did ask for a pay rise. But her boss said that she probably didn't want a pay rise because after all, the more you earn, the more tax you'll pay. So you won't get any benefit of it. Diplomatically, Rachel said that her boss maybe didn't have the skill set to manage staff or do math for that matter. And it's such a shame that someone so young was on the receiving end Of such poor advice and support. Her income was the reason she stayed living at home so long, that and the fact that $30 of fully inclusive board from an income of $142 was a pretty sweet deal for Rachel. It helped that her mum and her partner would go away a lot too, giving her the house to herself and a lot of autonomy over her life. Despite her meager income, she did save up fifteen hundred dollars in her first year as a deposit on her first car, which cost three grand. She went to the bank and loaned another $1,500 on a three-year term and was determined to pay it off early, which she did. She fell into the trap that many fall into today, buying things using debt, but thankfully she did it with a degree of caution. If she wanted to buy something like a new TV, she would lay by or HP it and make regular payments, but she said she was strict with herself, only ever having one thing at a time that she was paying for. You could borrow money back then, but it was harder. Fast forward to today, and you can pretty much split any purchase into weekly payments, meaning that it's far easier to take on a lot of debt easily. Parents who have never spoken with their kids about money, they might be surprised at the state of some kids' finances if they actually sat down and talked to them about it. For Rachel, in about 1997, when she was 24 and in her first long-term relationship, she signed up for her first credit card. They were leaving the country for a quick holiday, the first time traveling overseas for her, and she got it because she didn't want to carry cash. She remembers that it had a $500 limit, but had heard stories of so many people spending their way into credit card debt, so she was really cautious, she remembers. But she also felt in the back of her mind the huge temptation that having access to credit or debt gives you. She ended up marrying her partner. She didn't want to do it, but she did it anyway. She was on the treadmill, she said. The thing to do, given they had been together a few years, was to get married. So she did. He was a good person who was also good with money, she said. He had a stable job in the military and that came with a superannuation fund. He took care of their joint finances. It was a strength of his. And he tried to involve her in all aspects of it. He always had their best interests at heart but handling money was over her head. And in hindsight, he tried to teach her his way of handling putia, something I see in a lot of relationships. But we all come at money differently, so couples have to both adjust their way of thinking, talking about and handling money until they each understand it. You have to find a middle ground. Otherwise, one person will tap out of the conversation and it will all fall to one person as it did here. His military career saw them move around New Zealand a bit, plus there were deployments for him overseas, but eventually they settled enough to buy a home together and she did then begin to take a slight interest in their finances. This was also her first foray into real estate. In around 2001-2002, they bought a house in the Manawatu for $151,000 with a mortgage of $85,000. Their household income was about $120,000 a year, which would have been considered a good income. The mortgage was partly revolving credits with a fixed-rate portion too, and she recalls freaking out and feeling really scared about borrowing such a large amount of money because she knew next to nothing about mortgages. They also bought a car on finance that they set about paying off, and she recalled that all in all, they were not really big spenders. When at one point she received a $5,000 inheritance, she fulfilled a long-held dream of visiting New York. Anything you can dream of is in New York, she said, and they had the best time over there. She settled into paying a mortgage. She got her head around how it worked, she said, and fell into the good habit of making sure the bills got paid. Eventually, she got on board with how the day-to-day financial transactions of life work. They started some AMP-managed funds, plus her husband was paying into his work super fund. There were no retirement savings for her, because KiwiSaver just didn't exist at that point. She worked as a florist with a few years spent working in a jewelry store, and both were jobs that she could pick up in other towns if and when he was moved with the military. Now, just 18 months into buying their house, they thought they could afford a rental property, but by that time, Rachel was having doubts about her marriage, which she found very boring, and she knew she didn't want to commit to the second purchase. So their relationship petered out after 13 years together when she was 30 years old. And by far, calling time was the hardest decision she has ever had to make, she said. And she was very sorry to hurt him so deeply, because she said he was a really nice guy, talented, loving, all those things. And while there was no one else, the grass simply looked a bit more exciting on the other side of the fence. The law stated that their finances would be split 50-50, but because she felt pretty bad about walking away, she left his superannuation out of the settlement. He got to keep that, and she walked away with the house and a mortgage of $65,000. Now, for the record, a divorce settlement is just that. It's a settlement between the two people involved. Just thinking about that for a moment, I wondered what I would do if I woke up in her shoes. I know I'd also feel bad about ending my marriage, but I would have included the superannuation in the settlement. His super was a joint property asset, and because this was pre-KiwiSaver, She had no retirement savings of her own. She was entitled to half of his, and she should have taken it. There was a large disparity between their incomes, so she was on the back foot now, paying a mortgage on the salary of a florist. She didn't make enough money to cover all of her outgoings, which meant she had to take on a flatmate. She didn't like living with other people, but it was a means to an end. It was at this time, when she was forced to handle all the finances by herself, that she really started budgeting. Not as good as she is today, but from a small seed, a mighty totara grows, right? Although she never quite knew what her mum was up to when she was writing lists and budgets at the kitchen table, well she found herself doing similar things to her. And from that point on, she has always had a budget and was always looking at ways to shave off costs, always looking to cut spending so she could make her money stretch a bit further. She was single for quite a few years, which she really enjoyed. And it was also during that time in her early 30s that she started running. And that led to a lot of changes in her headspace. And running is so good for your mental health because it gets you out and about taking in the greens and blues or nature in the wide open sky. And it built up her confidence, she said. Along the way, someone she met convinced her that because she had so much equity in a house, she should put it all at risk, which are my words, not hers and buy a rental property. From memory she thought she bought it with a 100% mortgage and she paid around $100,000 for it. She painted it up and rented it out in no time and kept it for a few years. She looked at buying a third property but felt uncomfortable doing so because of the debt burden and by that time she had a new partner which was taking her down a different path and she ended up selling the rental property anyway. Her new partner was a ton of fun, but boy was he the worst with money, she said. The absolute worst. Money to him was like meth to an addict. If it was there, he used it. He had a job, but despite that, he spent way more than he earned, and his parents had bailed him out of his debt twice already, to the tune of about 20 grand each time. She knew all this going in, and she had hard conversations with him about money, and he told her, in hindsight, what she wanted to hear. Against her better judgment, and she knew she should not have sabotaged her life in this way, she married him anyway. They combined their money and their assets, not that he had any, and they didn't sign a relationship property agreement, which were a lot less common then, and because he told her that he would change his ways, no two ways about it. They sold her remaining home in about 2008-2009 for $285,000, and they bought a brand new build with four bedrooms in a new subdivision, taking on a $265,000 mortgage. She very quickly worked out that his rock-solid word meant for nothing, and he could not be trusted with money. Anything he could buy, he would, particularly if it had an engine attached to it, which of course then needed all the gear that inevitably went with it, and he'd go out drinking and smoking with no expense spared. She was mindful of the costs of all these habits, But he simply didn't care because he was a financial hot mess. To prevent them hemorrhaging money, she had to restrict his access to it. And if she wouldn't give him money for cigarettes, he would ask his friends and borrow money off them instead. She said he was so childish with money and that was no way to live. They fought over money all the time. And that was ultimately what ruined their six-year relationship. This time, everything was sold and their money was split 50-50 and I'd imagine he had no hesitation in taking half. Now single again, she bought a semi-detached two-bedroom house for $185,000 using a deposit of just $45,000 with a mortgage of about hundred and forty dollars She kept forty dollars to $50,000 of cash back in her bank account as a buffer against life and as an emergency fund. So she had really gone financially backwards in her second marriage, coming out with about ninety grand. It was a fully renovated cute wee place that she bought and she loved it, living there happily for a couple of years before the urge to move saw her upping sticks, selling a house for $185,000 which was exactly what she paid for it and heading to Auckland sometime in 2012. She got a job in the floral industry again, cleared the mortgage and pondered her next step. After staying with her sister for a time and not knowing anyone in Auckland, She decided to go flatting again, knowing that ultimately she wanted to buy a home of her own. She put the money in her bank account, which was about a hundred grand, and she just waited. Then also in 2012, she met Tony, and this time it was different from her other relationships. After a few coffees, lunches, and dates, while out at dinner one night getting to know each other, she said that Cupid's arrow fired straight at her. It was like a bolt to her heart, she said, a completely new sensation that made her know without a doubt that this is my person, and he was. They dated for a year, and he had a house of his own with a mortgage, and when she had been in Auckland for a year, she started looking for a property of her own to buy. She went to her bank and she left in tears, which is not an uncommon story in my experience of talking to women about money. It was 2013 and she had a $65,000 deposit and was told pretty straight that this is not enough money to buy something. She said that some bankers need to work on their personal skills, and after crawling into a hole for a few days to lick her wound, she thought, I can figure this out, I've been figuring stuff out for years, and she started to look for information. She saw a special offer being advertised by a financial advisor, she paid the $75 fee and listened to what they had to say, which was, much to her delicate ego's shock, pretty much what the banker had been saying, that she had the ability to save but she'd been frittering away too much money. Granted, she didn't have consumer debt, but she fritters away her income and her savings. Neither of those things grow wealth. The special offer was the hook to get her in the door, but she declined to take the next step and pay their high fee for them to release their secret to financial success. But they had inadvertently given her the wake-up call that she needed and told her all she needed to know, stop wasting money and you will have more of it. Now, that single sentence is such a powerful one. Stop wasting money and you'll have more of it. It was game on for Rachel. Her flatmate, much to his surprise, became a father and now Rachel had a third flatmate, a tiny baby, coming to stay every weekend. So that was the cue to leave and she stayed with Tony for three months, paying rent and splitting the bills, while she also sharpened up her financial act, meaning that she could move ahead and buy a house in Auckland. It was a two-bedroom semi-detached smart wee house on a nice street with tidy gardens and in late 2013 she paid $305,000 for it, taking on a $260,000 mortgage, which was pretty big by her standards. But having lived with Tony for a few months by now, neither of them wanted her to leave. So although it was never her intention from the get-go, this house became a rental property for her. An accidental landlord is born. She managed the property herself, topping up the mortgage by $100 each week, and always had tenants who lasted around six to nine months. Because she was a pet owner herself, she always rented to people with pets, but preferred not to rent to families with young kids. She didn't then, and she doesn't now, like hearing stories about awful landlords, so she set about becoming a really good one, always treating her tenants as if they were clients to be looked after well. By now, she was working in a role in the grocery industry. That had her working as a team leader, a trainer and a quality assurance manager and it was a really stressful role. She worked a 45-hour week and earned $68,000 a year and was considered a real high performer in her role, but she felt like an undervalued cog in a giant machine. Several times she tried to negotiate her hours down to 40 a week, leaving her more time to live life, but retained the same salary, but was turned down flat. So, after her third attempt and third refusal, she quit on the spot, which was a bold move and I was curious to find out what this resourceful woman would do next. She didn't just jump out of the boat without a life jacket. She had been writing plans about starting up a housekeeping business. After walking out of her job, she talked with Tony about her ideas for starting her own business and within hours had clients booked. In 2015, helped by a $30,000 inheritance left by her mum when she passed away, she set up her own business working in the Auckland area. Initially, she built up a team to work with her, cleaning and caring for people's homes, before settling into working alone. Finding reliable staff was just too hard, but she had plenty of reliable work to keep herself occupied. Good housekeepers are impossible to find and always sought after, so she really tapped into that need. Getting her business successfully up and running also coincided with Rachel having the tenant from hell. Despite preferring to have pets rather than children in her rental property, she had rented to a woman with two tamariki whose background checks seemed okay, and for the first month of her six-month tenancy, all was good. But after the first month, it went downhill from there as the family steadily trashed the place. The neighbours were phoning Rachel, drugs were on the premises, police were getting called, and tenant and landlord ultimately ended up in court. At the end of it, Rachel decided that she didn't want to be a landlord anymore, so she spent two weeks bringing the house back up to a saleable standard, and she sold it in about 2015-2016. She had bought it for $305,000 and sold it two to three years later for $500,000, which is the kind of soundbite property investors would like you to hear. An almost $200,000 profit. Woohoo, that's awesome. But not so fast. After paying off the mortgage, topping up the mortgage for two to three years at $100 a week, losing rent from a bad tenant, paying all of the outgoings which every rental property has, and spending thousands of dollars to fix it up after the trashy tenant trashed it, she thinks she probably walked away with about $140,000, not $200,000. Within 3 years she had however increased her original deposit of $45,000 to $140,000 and banked the potia but it was she concluded a really stressful way to make money now control the controllables is her mantra and towards the end of owning that rental property it all felt kind of out of control you constantly hear in New Zealand that rental property is the way to make money and i think that for some that choose to make managing property a business It absolutely can be. But for more Kiwis than I think we care to admit it, owning a second property, as you saw Rachel do, is not a business. It is just lurching from one property to another without a strategic plan. And that's not a peaceful way to grow wealth, in my opinion. And I'll sometimes get emails that say something along the lines of, Ruth, I know you don't like investment property, but that's just not the case at all. We need rental properties here in Aotearoa, and I'm fully in favour of people who provide good ones." But I just think that if people would actually run the numbers of their property, as you would with a business, it's not the sure financial bet that they think it is because of the sheer number of variables involved in running the business and the heavy reliance on debt and rising house prices. Now, as a couple, Tony and Rachel, they didn't talk about money much. Why would they? She didn't talk about it growing up. Her first husband did get her talking about it, but her second husband more than proved she was better off not to discuss it. But she did go out on a limb and initiate a conversation with Tony about their future together. She knew she didn't want to marry again, but both of them agreed that they intended on being together for a very long time. They wanted to grow old together. Of that, they were quite sure. Once her property sold, she didn't want to buy another house that she had no intention of living in, and she knew of no other way to make her money work for her other than housing. Tony had told her that his mortgage was coming up for renewal in 2017 so it made sense to put the money she had spare which was $110,000 on his mortgage. From then on they paid for everything including the mortgage 50-50. They had one shared account for utilities and groceries but they also kept their own separate bank accounts too. By now her business was going really well and so was his He worked as a highly respected triathlon coach and was super sought after for his skills, having competed at the top of his sport for many years. He had a good business head on his shoulders and was super sensible as both a coach and a life partner, she said. When she put her money into his mortgage, they began to think of it as their house and she brought up the fact that she needed to get her name on the mortgage so that she would have some ownership over her investment. And they talked this through. But neither was sure how the bank would view it, especially given she considered herself still quite newly self-employed. At the very least, she prompted him to update his will, to reflect and acknowledge the money that she had put on his mortgage and was continuing to put on his mortgage. Now, it was an awkward conversation because no part of her was trying to get money. She just wanted it to be acknowledged that his personal financial situation had changed because of her. But she said they just had different approaches to admin, business and personal. Whereas she used zero for her business and was meticulous, he had his own admin system and he did his own GST returns. She had a will and she kept it up to date to reflect her changing life. But for Tony, creating a will, which he had never done before, it just kept getting pushed to the side. Something that's so easy to do because who wants to acknowledge that they are going to die one day? And he hated to talk about dying, she said. Whereas she just thought it was the responsible thing to do because it keeps things tidy for those left behind. Well, time ticked on. And every six months, Rachel would ask Tony if he had done anything about writing a will. But he said he had not. And on the financial front, they fell into the pattern of having a financial AGM. They would literally create an agenda of things to discuss, such as the mortgage, which remained in his name, being up for renewal or some other life event that had financial implications and each time she brought up having her name on the mortgage, on the title to the house and also Tony getting a will in place. She said to him, if you die I'm going to have to tidy all this up but if she died he would be able to follow her wishes as outlined by her will. Tony was a super smart guy, an engineer by training and they tend to be meticulous by nature and he was great with numbers, but this life admin stuff, it was just not his thing. It was not that he thought her asking him to write a will was intrusive, it was more that he didn't really appreciate or understand her concerns. Rachel was very practical, so her point of view was that we're all going to die, none of us know when, and it makes sense to be prepared. Time ticked along, life ticked along, and both of them threw themselves into their relationship, their respective work, and their shared passion of triathlon, sport, and just fitness in general. They didn't talk about money, they just paid the bills that needed to be paid by the person whose name was on the account. In 2018, Rachel started taking an interest in her KiwiSaver fund, which was languishing in an ANZ default fund. They still felt too vulnerable to talk about their own money, but her and Tony started to kōrero about wider investment ideas, and they began to get their head around the terminology of investing, and would discuss companies and stocks. They listened to American Dave Ramsey and Australian Glenn James from My Millennial Money. And finally, after her telling him he was foolish for having ignored it for so long at the age of 51 to 52, he signed up for KiwiSaver. His rough idea had been to pay off his house and then invest in shares, but she rightly told him he was missing out by ignoring the part KiwiSaver could plan his retirement. He needed to do both, get out of debt and save for retirement. At one point she had saved up $45,000 in cash and it was in a bank account and they discussed what they would save in interest if she put it on his mortgage. He shared that he had about $50,000 in the bank and in a roundabout and indirect way they talked about it. His preference was to play what she called the interest rate game which is keeping money in the bank and earning interest while paying interest on his mortgage. To her it just didn't make any sense but because neither pushed the money talk far enough The status quo remained, and they danced around the edges of both of their financial lives, learning a little more about each other with each conversation. He was good enough with money. He paid cash for everything, including large items like a car. He grew up poor and was really careful with money, but like her, money was private and not something to discuss out loud, which was a huge shame given they'd been together for a number of years by now. Now, the country had ended one of its first lockdowns in early to mid 2020. And Rachel once again said to Tony that she thought it was time to sit down and talk about finances, just in case we went into another lockdown, which, if you recall, we actually did. They discussed the fact that they had access to lending to prop up their businesses if needed, but neither of them wanted to use that. Going into debt would be an absolute last resort, they decided. And during the lockdown, Tony couldn't train his athletes in person or in a group setting, so his income was affected. And hers was too, as she couldn't enter other people's homes. And I still find this remarkable, that even while going through these lockdowns and knowing the other was losing income, neither ever knew what the other even earned for a living. And to me, that's just the strangest thing, not sharing with your spouse what you earn. But she saw her non-sharing as a way to protect herself, as she had needed to do in previous relationships but both of them were thankfully able to receive government subsidies during that time, and that kept them afloat. For Rachel, a woman who likes to plan, it made sense to have that sit down and nut it all out and have a plan written down just in case the lockdown went on for longer or we had another one. Now during that meeting they took the time to plan Iron Man events that she wanted to do in the years ahead, and again she pressed him to get his will sorted, going so far as to point out That it was actually irresponsible of him and unfair on her for him to keep putting it off. And his response was to joke that he was going to outlast her anyway, and he reckoned he was far healthier than her. She said he hated talking about dying, and joking about it made the conversation a bit more palatable, I suspect. She gave him the details of someone she recommended he contact who would do a will quickly and make it easy on him. She stressed it was not hard work, it just needed a small amount of his attention. She also explained that his will was his wishes. She was not saying, leave me everything. But given that they owned a house together and had some joint bank accounts, well, she wanted to know that she would have a claim on those. And she pointed out that she had seen the state of his office and that she couldn't imagine grieving his death and having to organize his life admin. What a mess. But he was a busy guy. He would far rather be working on training plans for his athletes, carrying out research and coaching others than doing paperwork. She said he got her point and he assured her it was on his to-do list. Because it had been on that same list for three years already, she promised to follow him up. But tragically, just three days after that meeting and chat in June of 2020, after returning home from a morning bike ride with a bunch of athletes, he suffered a massive cardiac arrest and he collapsed and died and he was just 54 years old. He was a very well-known member in the athletic community and was instantly greatly missed. And for Rachel, this moment marked the point where her life began again, and she now thinks of life before Tony and after Tony. Once his funeral was over and life began to settle and quieten down, as it inevitably does after such a traumatic experience, Rachel slipped into problem-solving mode. She had a lot to sort out to tie up the ends of Tony's life. She had been able to pay cash for the $15,000 funeral expenses, in the hope that this amount would later be returned to her from his estate. And getting things done was her method of coping. She knew there was a way forward, she just had to find it, and she called on her core group of good people to help her unravel the threads of a life suddenly cut short. The GST for her own business was due, making her realise that Tony's must be too. But apart from their few joint accounts, all of his bank accounts, which were in his own name, were now frozen and she had no access to them. So she messaged her own accountant and explained that her partner Tony had died, but that his GST was due. She didn't know what to do and asked for their help. And her accountant, the best in the whole wide world, she said, said, leave it with me, I'll sort it. And she did. Now, you might hear this and think that the government can wait for their GST. But this was the first lead she had in regards to beginning the process of tidying up his admin and his business. So she followed it. Next, she contacted a lawyer she had previously met, and his first question was, were you married? No. Second question was, is there a will? Also no. So this means he died intestate, and the fallout of Tony's death and the fact he died without a will was about to rain down upon her. This particular lawyer had not settled in a state for a really long time, so she made the correct decision to take the advice of a friend of Tony's who she knew to be good with money and to go to one that they knew and recommended, and who was more familiar with wills and estates. If she was going to have to work all this out, she really did need to work with people who were experts in this area, and this was not the time for them to be unclear about what needed to be done. Now, as I start to explain all this, you won't be surprised to learn that I'm no expert, and while I try to do my best, I may get some details of the legalities a little wrong, So please go online and do your own research about dying without a will. Because his assets were more than $15,000, the distribution of his assets would be determined by law and the formal administration of the estate was required. Certain processes had to be adhered to and she had to get the authority of the court to act with a lawyer as the administrator of the estate. There was a whole new language and process to learn here and the process took time. Because she was beginning to realise the complexity of what lay ahead, she began to keep very detailed notes of everyone she spoke with, everything they said, plus their contact details. Because she knew she couldn't possibly remember everything, and she was also aware early on that lawyers don't know everything either. She began to be made aware that there are some things you can tidy up yourself, such as contacting utility companies, and other things a lawyer must do, but that will incur a cost. But wow, what an absolute pain in the butt to sort once he died. She said, It's not for the faint-hearted to sort out utility bills in the aftermath of the death of someone you love when the bills are not in your name. Because the various utility accounts were not in her name, she had to get a letter of administration from the court to contact every single supplier. Because her name was not on the mortgage, she became a tenant in his home despite the fact that she was contributing to make the fortnightly mortgage payments, despite the fact she had put her money into the property. But there was no will to make mention of them as a couple of eight years, so a tenant she became. Now each situation is different. There is a basic order of priority for the distribution of a deceased estate, depending on the makeup of the farno, But in her situation, given they'd been together for more than three years, the law dictates that his estate had to be shared between herself and his parents, both of whom were still alive. Rachel would receive his personal effects, $155,000, and two-thirds of anything that was left. His parents would receive the remaining third, equally divided between them. Tony and Rachel had a great relationship with his mum, who was divorced from his father, but he'd not been in contact with his father for 25 long years, and there were good reasons for that. But given there was no will to express his wishes, his father was lawfully entitled to his share of his son's estate. Rachel and her lawyer worked out Tony's net worth, and part of their job is to find all of the assets of the deceased. Any bank accounts, debts, or investments he had, they had to be tracked down. And once found, they worked out the value of each. There was the house, his KiwiSaver, plus some share investments. The KiwiSaver investments totaled about $100,000. Tidying up his small share portfolio was one of the hardest hurdles to climb over she said but she also said she just went into problem solving mode. She had a contact at a large investment firm that she barely knew but the woman really stepped up and helped Rachel work her way through the process of selling them so the money could go to the estate. Other items like bikes, a car, furniture, appliances and what have you well they were considered personal belongings and they went to Rachel and having no need for most of them she sold them. Now a tenant in what had formerly been her home for eight years, the house had to be sold and I can't imagine how incredibly hard that must have been for Rachel. But in order to pay out his parents, it had to be sold really, otherwise she would have had to approach a bank, take on a much bigger mortgage than what they already had, just to pay out his parents. The house, which she had to prepare for sale, sold for $1,050,000 a portion of the sale price would be used to clear the $380,000 mortgage that remained, leaving $670,000. And once the calculations had been done, his parents were each entitled to about $130,000 and both were advised to consult their own lawyers in relation to any questions they had because it would take some time for the house sale to go through and the money to then be released. And despite Rachel encouraging Tony's mother to take the money, as was her right, she refused to do so giving her portion back to Rachel. His father had no such qualms about accepting money from his estranged son, and the balance of the estate then went to Rachel. This process took many months, giving everyone time to think through their decisions and options. All the time Rachel was working and paying for everything out of her own pocket. She kept detailed notes of everything she spent any money on, and she kept every single receipt as she went about preparing the house for sale. And all up she spent about $30,000 including the $15,000 she paid for Tony's funeral and this was reimbursed when the estate was finally settled and paid out. Rachel, ever the planner and especially given what she had been through, has pre-paid her own funeral and documented her funeral wishes in her own will now. Her expenses included the mortgage payment of about $900 a fortnight and dealing with the ANZ bank was a horrible experience. It was just awful she said. There was no human factor included just a lot of paperwork and she ended up creating a spreadsheet documenting all the bankers she spoke with and everything they said but with so many people involved it made for a very messy process and eventually she insisted that she deal with only one person and that finally happened and only once she started making a bit of noise did they offer her the option of not making mortgage payments. Instead when the house was sold They would take all those payments and interest back then, but she decided to just continue paying. Now, I don't think I could ever accurately convey in this podcast the fact that she was in deep grief and trying to make sense of her partner's finances at the same time, and it all made for a really difficult time. People were kind to her during this time and offered her money, and she did accept a few thousand dollars to meet some expenses, but then she paid it back when she was able to. It was nice to know she said that when the chips were down people were so kind but it was also embarrassing to have to accept that help. All of this is exactly what she was trying to avoid when she asked Tony to write a will and tidy up his life admin and now she was living day by day, week by week and month by long month sorting it all out after the fact. She felt no anger towards him just sadness at the situation but I suspect if she could have spoken to him, she might have said, I blooming well told you this would happen. Now, in regards to settling his estate, she said she was like a dog with a bone. It consumed her. She just couldn't let it drag on any longer than it had to because it meant that she remained a tenant in his property with all of her capital tied up. It fell on her to prepare their home for sale and she just knew she had to get as much for it as she possibly could so that she had enough to move on with. She said she had to chase and chase, constantly following everything up and marking things off her list as done. Tony had a small business, but no Tamariki, a Kiwi saver and a few shares. It should have been a simple estate to settle, and she spares a thought for anyone who has a more complex situation than this. If a will had have been in place and both of their names on their various household bills, everything would have been so much more straightforward, and they could have carried out his final wishes. He died in June, and after all her mahi, she was starting to get some clarity of how much money she would come out with, which was close to $800,000. With the sale of their home progressing, in October she started looking at houses, and in late December of 2020, the estate was finally paid out, and she moved out of their home and into her own home. She was forced to move to a different part of Auckland because of the cost of housing, having risen so much in the time that they'd been together. So that was another big adjustment to her life, moving to a new community. She paid $740,000 cash for her new house. And finally, for the first time in her adult life, she actually became mortgage free. Now, six months to settle the estate of someone who died without a will is actually considered extremely fast. From the Googling I did, it's not unusual for it to drag out six to 24 months or longer. And because she was so driven to get it done, she got it done quickly. But make no mistake, this woman has been through the ringer on this one, chasing up every lead, tying up every loose end, all the while continuing to work at her housekeeping jobs. Now, Winston Churchill apparently once said, if you are going through hell, just keep going. And Rachel certainly did that. Since Tony died, she said she has really got her stuff together with money, like really got it together not just ambling along anymore. She feels like she has had to relearn personal finance. And she says relearn, but really, apart from her first husband, no one ever really taught her much that was useful. And after his death, she found that she got overwhelmed by life quite quickly. So she has reduced her working week to four days to give herself some space and allow her to pace herself a bit better. Still working as a housekeeper, she is earning about $85,000 a year gross and will always be grateful that her clients gave her their support throughout Tony's death. Now, one of her moves to empower herself has been to cancel her Westpac credit card, which she had used to fritter her money since the age of twenty four. Yes, she paid it off in full each month, but she also spent more than she needed to each month, and it took her a year to make the decision that quite honestly you just don't need them. And true to form, her bank did give her the self-serving advice to, quote, just keep it open, but just cut up the card itself, so that it's not in your wallet and just use it for online shopping only. But the fact of the matter was that she did overspend simply because she had access to credit. And you can shop online and in-store with a debit card, which directly uses your own money. When you spend your own money, you will spend less. Now today, her KiwiSaver balance is $46,000 and she is now with Simplicity in a growth fund, so no longer in those terrible default funds, And she is budgeting well and has $40,000 spread across various sinking funds and bank accounts, with a big chunk of that being specifically for emergencies. She's no longer with ANZ, or Westpac for that matter, and why would you stick with a bank that made a tough time of your life even more difficult? Whereas she used to budget from a position of making her money spread itself around to stave off problems, she now, I think, budgets from a position of strength. She's telling her money where to go so that she is really in financial control of her life. From her business, she pays herself on the same day each week, and money is then automatically drafted off into her different sinking funds. And in many ways, she treats her money much like the old-fashioned envelope system as prescribed by Dave Ramsey. And she keeps a good amount of cash, about 18 grand, in her business bank accounts, and it sits there all ready to cover all of her expenses and any upcoming tax obligations. And more recently she has started investing in some ETF funds and a few single stocks using sharesies with a growing balance of $5,000. And when it comes to her money today, basically listening to her talk, I could tell that she now had enough cash in her system to keep everything running smoothly. It feels calm. There is no thought of taking on a ton of debt to buy a house to make money or scraping to get by. She owns a house, has no debt, and will now start to use her after-tax income to grow her KiwiSaver and those ETF investments. It all feels really cautiously optimistic to me. Now the point of this episode is not so much of where Rachel is at now, but to really share what dying without a will will do for those left behind. She said to me that every time she listened to an episode of this podcast, she wondered that if she were to share her story, she might be able to kick someone else into ensuring their finances are in order, And that is what she wants you to take away from this. Get a will sorted. Stop putting it off. Get your head out of the sand and do it today. She said that you should say to your spouse, I love you so much that we are going to take one week's annual leave and do nothing but sort our life, Admin. I don't want you to be uncertain about your future when I'm not here. Take the time to make sure each of your names are on your utilities. That both of you know your bank account numbers and PIN numbers. Know where all of your assets and debts are. Make sure your wills are both up to date and reflect your current situation. If you have divorced, then for goodness sake, update your will to reflect that change. Ask yourself if you need an enduring power of attorney, which will give the other the ability to act on your behalf if you are incapacitated or unable to do so. Make sure absolutely everything is shared. That you know where passports and birth certificates are, who's your accountant, your lawyer. You simply have to talk about this stuff. It's so very important, she said. And if you are alone, as she now is, do as she has done and create a spreadsheet of information that she shares with her sister, who she trusts implicitly. If you don't have that person in your life, use a lawyer. And as mentioned, her funeral is prepaid, in so far as she has put four thousand dollars down and she pays $50 a month into the Funeral Directors Association of New Zealand Trust account. An inexpensive funeral these days is about $10,000, she said, and when she dies the balance will be paid from her estate. Now Rachel believes that tidying up your life admin is the sensible, loving, and responsible thing to do. It takes time to do it, but it's very simple once it's done, and then it's a live document and you can both see and edit as things change. And when she dies, which she will one day, we all will, it will be easy for her sister or her future spouse to manage. Now, her plea to you is, please sort your life admin out because you are going to die. Now, I also wanted to give a shout out here to a website called mypeaceofmind.co.nz. It's created by a Kiwi called page. Now, it's not a will, but it's a living document that holds all of your most important information in case of emergency or death. And it's a place where your whanau know to go if something goes wrong. And something like this will guide those left behind to information they need to know when they can no longer ask you. Now, in regards to your will, she recommends you go to a lawyer who specializes in wills and estates. Wills need to be something they do a lot of. It might cost $500 plus, I don't know, rates vary, but it's a really good spend of your money, she believes. Especially if you have a property, a business, children, investments or debt. Everybody needs a will because everyone has at least one of those things. Even if you have a car but rent, you still have possessions and a life that needs tidying up when you are no longer around to do it. She even has her pets written into her will because that's the responsible thing to do. So her advice is to ring a lawyer and they will direct you. Now I've heard several accounts of people settling the estates of a family member. Some are using lawyers, some with a mix of lawyers and doing all the running around as Rachel has done. And some are using a big organisation such as the Public Trust to handle it all, given that settling estates is their area of expertise. You do you, but just do something would be my advice. Rachel now tries to openly have conversations with people about making a will and generally discussing all parts of your life with your spouse. And she has learned that many people, just like Tony, have it as an item on their to-do list. And she's telling you to just get it done, get it sorted today. Death is one guarantee we all have. Yet nobody really likes to talk about it. Tony didn't, and he died too soon. So I'm nearing the end, but before I wrap up, I've just got one final message from today's sponsor. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the Happy Saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the Happy Saver. Losing Tony has left a huge gap in Rachel's life. His death is, without a doubt, a massive loss, and her recovery is slowly ongoing, and that feeling of her heartbreaking will never completely go away, I'm sure. Slowly, she is rebuilding her life, and at the start of 2023, she said she finally really started clawing her way back out of what she called her grief hole. Slowly, very slowly, she is finding a new way forward without Tony. She's getting back into the exercise routine that she used to enjoy so much, one that was created by Tony, and she is now tweaking it to make it her own, and she's once again swimming and running and getting back on her bike, things that are all so good for your headspace. She has come to settle with the idea that part of her life is done now, the time she enjoyed with Tony, and it is time not to move on, but to create the next chapter. And I found creating this particular episode particularly kind of emotionally exhausting, because it made me think about my death one day, and that of my husband, Johnny. I spoke with Rachel for about three hours, so I really got a close-up view of what adjusting to his loss, while arguing with every utility company, bank, and provider it did to her. And I know for a fact that I would hate my sudden death to dump that kind of stress on an already really stressful situation. Now this episode actually led Johnny and I to tidy up a few loose ends in regards to utilities that we've never quite got around to putting in both our names. For example, our power bill was only in my name, a byproduct of me being the person who emailed the company way back when we first signed up. I've fixed that up now and am on the lookout for other things we have set up that are in one name only. And I hope that hearing from Rachel prompts you into action today. And finally, thanks so very much, Rachel, for being so utterly honest about such a tough period in your life. I think that you've achieved your aim of helping others take responsibility for their personal admin. And as I said, it has prompted me into action. Someone who was already pretty organised. So I hope she's kicked all the other organised and disorganised people into gear too. Thanks again, Rachel. I so appreciate Our very long korero. So finally that is all from me this week and if you want to get in touch you know you can find me at thehappysaver.com and please do share this podcast and my blog with your friends and whanau because it is the best way that people can learn about the podcast and I would love it obviously as would Rachel if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time happy saving.